As a side note, most of these 12 Norwegian commanders were not really military men until World War II came. They had been just normal Norwegian civilians with jobs of things like teacher, postman, tour guide, and factory worker. Wow! So it's cool how they just turned into total badasses. Yeah, so if you're listening to this, or and you're a teacher, a tour guide, or a factory worker, you could become a commando tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's in you. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. You know, I miss Henry Frick. Why? Because his life and story was so crazy. That's a throwback, everybody. Go listen to our Ray Kroc and Henry Frick episode, which came out... Oh, man. November 22nd. November 22nd. Wow. I think. Yeah, that's going to be it. But yes, it's a good one. So check it out. Anyway, why do you miss Henry Frick again? Just because he was weird? We have a really rude story. Remember those Pinkertons? Yep, it involves the, the Pinkertons. <laughs> yeah, love the sound of that. <clears throat> anyway, we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So James, who do we have this week? Charles Manson and Brigham Young. Oh shit. We have decided not to do Charles Manson. No. The shit is fucked in that story. <laughs> uh, but we're still doing Brigham Young and... Leif Tronstad. Ah. And we are still going balls to the walls with this episode. Balls to the walls, yeah, okay. Yeah, ball uh, to the walls. <laughs> Uh, before we begin, though, uh, just because we do talk about religious people quite a bit, I just want to throw out a quick disclaimer. We don't hate religious people. We don't have a problem with you if you're a Christian, Muslim, furry, or whatever. You do you. We love you all. Let's just make that clear right out of the gate. The only people group we hate are the people who watch Doctor Who and won't shut the fuck up about That's it. That's exactly right. And now, shall we go to the history lab? Most definitely. One, possibly the greatest hero the world has ever known. The other, unallegedly polygamous 19th century Moses who had a university named after him in Salt Lake City. Leif Tronstad and Brigham Young, two very different people who inexplicably ended up on the same episode. Ah, so James, yeah. uh, if you could talk to Pickles about one thing in English, mm -hmm. what would it be? Well, uh, I would definitely want to ask him how he built the Great Wall of China. I would want to know that, too. Yeah. And how he was there. Yeah. I mean, he's only, a, what, 800 years old? So he couldn't have been there, could well, he? Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. But, I mean, but uh, Einstein's theory of time, like, the farther you go back, the not as old you have to be or something like that. So oh. he's only 800 years old. But with Einstein and all that shit, he could have been there. Are you drunk? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we're just gonna we're just gonna get started here. <laughs> Computer, please bring up Leif Tronstad and Brigham Young. Affirmative, my lord. Uh, so tell me, James, what is Leif Tronstad best known for? Leif Tronstad is best known for being a brilliant Norwegian intelligence officer, okay. resistance fighter, and patriot during World War II. All right, and he also may have saved the world. Uh and I say may, but it's probably saved the world. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, 
Uh, what did he look like? Well, this man is the human embodiment of red, white, and blue. Wait, 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 I thought he was Norwegian, not American. Well, those are also the colors of Norway. Thieves. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, what, they, their flag was designed after ours. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Everyone wants to be like us. It's amazing. Yeah, they were just so great. You know, America. Yeah. <laughs> Beware of Christians. Speaking of how great America is, <laughs> what is Brigham Young best known for? Uh, Brigham Young is best known for being the second president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the LDS. Shit. He's also known for founding Salt Lake City and is known affectionately in the LDS Church as the American Moses, or Mormon Moses. Mormon Moses. I mean, they're not wrong. Kind of was. Okay, fair mm. enough. Well, what did he look like? I could say something about him looking like a proud, hairy turnip, but I shall forego this and just say that he looks like a proud, hairy mountain goat. Ah. Unlike a lot of folks we do on this show, there are actually several pictures of him available. In his most popular one, he is rocking a gigantic neck beard and a comb-over with a righteous frown that could probably burn the sin right off of Kevin Spacey and all those other motherfuckers up in Hollywood. In his older photo, uh, photos, he looks considerably happier and less proud, but he has a haircut like Matilda and a magical gleam in his eye that, like he's about to show you around his wizard shop and sell you a wand. I'm so confused. Yep, that's what he looks like, though. Well, so, okay. Uh, in my opinion, it's time to move on to Leif Tronstad's early life and learn a little bit about him. Okay. Okay. So, Leif was born in... Be I think it's Byram. Byram, except uh, it had that letter with the A and the E are the same thing. Oh. I don't know how to pronounce that. So we're just going to say Barum. Barum, Norway. Okay. It's not in the story for long. Okay. <laughs> so he was born here in 1903 to Hans Larsen and Josephine Am Amelie Tronstad. Amelie. Amelie. Okay. Very Norwegian names. Yes. Uh, Leif's dad died three months before he was born, though, and this is in part why he took his mother's maiden name as his own last name, Leif Tronstad. Yes. Which sounds much more badass than Leif Larsen. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, Leif grew up with his mom and four older siblings in Sandvika, Norway, and graduated from middle school in 1918. Ah, he was that was a good year. It was, well, it was a good year. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was exceptional at mathematics and thus joined a 30-month program for electrical practice. Pract Practicing. 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 Okay. Uh, after this, he enrolled at Christiana Technical School, studied technical chemistry, graduated as the best chemistry student at the school, then prepared to enroll at the Norwegian Institute of Technology. Cool. NIT. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what do, I wonder what the mascot is. Uh... I don't know. <laughs> the camel. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, so one of his fellow students later said that Leaf was so smart that he, quote, did not have to read anything more than once. Cool. So it sounds kind of like a photographic memory, maybe? Yeah, I guess I don't so. Know. Uh, Leaf was also a fantastic athlete and set two Norwegian records for 1,500 meters relays. So basically, he's everything we're not. Ah, Athletic perfect. and smart. Okay. Uh, <laughs> in, <laughs> in 1924, Leaf moved to Trondheim to study at the Norwegian Institute of Technology and graduated in three years. Wow. And get this. His graduation paper was deemed so amazing that it was scientifically published a year later and it was also shown to King Haakon of Norway himself. Oh my god. So this dude is smart. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so during this time, Leif also finished his com compulsory military service in the Nor Norwegian military and reached the rank of second lieutenant before again returning to civilian life after his military service was complete. Okay. But do not fear, dear listeners. Leif's path will cross with the military eventually. Oh, Okay. Yes. Uh, but for now, uh, in 1928, Leif got married to a, a woman named Edla Obel. 
mm-hmm. who was nine years older than him. Oh, okay. And Nothing then, wrong with that? No, not at all. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. Uh, he then started working at the Norwegian Institute of Technology as a research fellow. Wait, okay, wait. How, how old is he at this point? I think that would put him around 25 years old? Uh, early life, James? God damn it, don't you know what that means? Shit. That's before... Well, it depends on who we're talking about. <laughs> like 18? Yeah. 21? Yeah. I don't know. It depends. 65? Because if we did early life for some of our characters, we wouldn't have especially anything. the really old ones, uh, yeah, he, we would have like three sentences so for early life. subjective a bit. <laughs> yeah. So, uh... Okay. Go on. Well, basically, I'm just trying to pack in all this boring stuff so we can get on to what's really incredible later. Uh, wait. Uh, this... What? This is incredible. Well, yeah. Uh, it is incredible. He's very smart. Okay. <laughs> so, as a research fellow, Leaf studied a whole bunch of things that I know nothing about, like passivity of metal surfaces. He studied metallograph... Met- Metography? Metallography. Metallography? God. (laughs) Uh, He got a doctorate degree, found a way to measure extremely thin oxide surface coatings. Okay. Published a thesis that was translated into several languages, did research at the University of Cambridge in England, worked a lot with mercury tests, was made a professor of technical inorganic chemistry at the Norwegian Institute of Technology in 1934, and he was only 31 at this time. Uh, He became vice president of the Norwegian Chemical Society, wrote about 80 scientific publications, and spent a lot of time studying heavy water. Wow! So basically, (laughs) to sum this up, this guy is smarter than you and I will ever be. Yes, uh, yes, like ten times smarter. Yes. yes. Just a genius. Yeah, okay. Now, do you remember that I mentioned something about heavy water, like, a sentence ago? Uh, he y- studied heavy, heavy water. Heavy water, yeah, that's okay. Hint. Yes, uh, well, that's really important to this story. Okay. Uh, heavy water, if, if anyone doesn't know, is basically water that's full of hydrogen isotope deterium, deuterium, which gives the water certain nuclear properties. Okay. It was discovered very recently in 1932, well, recently to this story. Okay. And both German and Norwegian scientists were very interested in it. Uh, in 1934, the Norwegian company Norsk Hydro build it, built a plant at Vemork, Norway, that was made specifically to mass-produce heavy water. I can't okay, read. Okay, so they made a they made it's like just a, big water a plant, plant to make heavy water. Yes. Okay. And this is all important. I know it's kind of weird now. But I know, I'm this feels weird. Heavy water sounds made up. Yeah, but, I know. Uh, but what does it actually mean? When okay. You say it? Well. Basically, so Norway, they built this plant, and it was the first plant in the world to, like, mass-produce heavy water. Okay. And what this means is that heavy water can be used to research and perhaps make nuclear warheads. Oh, okay, now I get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Now we're going to skip forward a couple of years. Leif is still a professor and studying all sorts of science things. But then comes the day of April 9th, 1940. And what happened on this day, Aaron? Uh, I think that was the day... That, uh, oh, okay. Jesus, Eisenhower ate a sandwich. I don't know, April 9th? Well, that could have been it. But it, what also happened is the Germans invaded Norway on oh. that day. Oh, shit. And that is where we'll leave. We'll leave. 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 Tronstad. Okay. Well, that sounds good to me. How about yes. we just roll right over into Brigham Young's early life then? Yes. Because his is a lot shorter. Okay. And a lot less scientific. Uh, and a lot more, like, 
Well, you'll see. Okay. Brigham Young was born in Vermont in 1801 and straight into poverty. Shit. Yeah. As a child, he was moved about a lot. His parents were constantly looking for a community that fit their needs. His father was a carpenter and a blacksmith, and his mother was a stay-at-home mom, and she kind of had to be because they had 11 kids. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> one of the more important moves in his early life got him to upstate New York. Okay. And while growing up, his father taught him the basics of architecture and carpentry, and he earned his keep by taking care of the family farm and doing odd jobs around whatever community the family was in at the time. Mm, this uh, son of a carpenter <laughs> seems interesting. <laughs> yes. But anyway, so this son of a carpenter, not Jesus Christ, but Brigham Young, had a decent career as a handyman and general laborer. Odd for the time, he didn't get married until he was 23. Holy fuck. I know, he's like going to die in five years. Yeah. What's he waiting for? <laughs> anyway, so uh, his wife was named Miriam Works because believe me, Miriam can work it. You know how I know? Fuck. How? They had two daughters. Well, yep. there's the proof. Mm-hmm. At about the same time, they joined the Methodist Church. Okay. Yep, that's important. Kind of. Not oh, really. Dear. A little bit. A few <laughs> years later, Brigham Young moved to Menden, New York, where he came across a newly published book that sent his mind to reeling and changed his life forever. Whoa. What was that book? You'll never guess. And if you have, you'll have to wait however long it takes James to get through his shit before I tell you if you're right. Hey, you know what? Th this story is not shit. Just... Just wait. Okay, well. And I'm what was the book? Uh, you know, the last guy you picked was Charles Manson, and we didn't even get through the episode because yeah. we were too depressed. Yeah. So, you know what? Uh, I think we're going to take a break, not mm. think about Charles Manson, instead wonder True. about Leif Tronstad. Mm. And when we come back, we'll talk about Mr. Leif's adult life. And we are back to We Talk About Dead People. And when we left off, we were talking about Brigham Young's kind of boring early life. And now that we're back, we're going to talk about Leif Tronstad's adult life. And I cannot wait to see what we have here. It's going to get crazy. Okay. Well, yes. you know what? Here's the thing. Mm -hmm. So far, we know that he's super into chemistry and all kinds of other, you know, sciencey things. Yes. Um, but we don't know anything about this patriotism you mentioned earlier. Oh. So, okay. I say we just get started. Yeah, let's yes. go. Okay, so when we last left uh, Leif Tronstadt, his country had just been invaded by the German army. He was also super smart, like you said. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we can't emphasize that enough. Okay. Okay, so when Leif got the word that Norway was being invaded, he calmly informed his students of the situation, because he was teaching at the time, and then he went home to his family and got them somewhere safe. About this time, Leif got word that Oslo had fallen and that Germans were fast approaching. Oh. So what... <laughs> so what did he do, James? Like any patriotic Norwegian would, he started gathering local volunteers from various rifle associations, told them to arm themselves, and then formed a line of defense with these armed civilians and told them to repel any advancing forces. Oh, man. And so it's just him so, and a bunch of Norwegian NRA guys. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that kind of makes me think of, like, Tony Stark. He's just some genius. Yeah. He goes gets... Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, German paratroopers did land nearby, uh, but they were thankfully defeated by remnants of the Norwegian military before Leif and his little militia could get to them, because... Well, lucky them, they got defeated by the military instead of Leif. Well, I don't know if the militia would have done too well against German paratroopers. Still pretty cool that he got them all together. Oh, for sure. And okay. that's only the beginning. Like, yes. Uh, but unfortunately, the German campaign for Norway was pretty fast and eventually forced the Norwegian government to escape to London. Oh. Which is interesting, by the way, uh... They all, or most of them, escaped to London. So Norway technically never fell to ah. the Third Reich. They were still functioning in London. Oh, I see. Uh, hmm. Whereas, like, the Danish government was, they 
they didn't escape and they were taken over. I see. Anyway, so under German occupation, thousands of Norwegians immediately became involved with resistance work, and of course, our boy Leif was among them. Perfect! Yes. Uh, Leif continued to work as a professor, but also helped send secret radio messages to London, and also kept a really close eye on German scientists. Oh. And why were these German scientists in the area? Red Skull. What? Oh. Captain America. Oh, I'm sorry. Fuck. We just talked about Tony Stark. Fuck, I'm uh. sorry. I'm sorry. I know you don't like those movies. Uh, yes. Okay. So, he's keeping an eye on the German scientists. Yes, because okay. of Captain America. Yes. He's like Captain Norway, by the way. Yeah? Well, uh, well, I don't know. Okay, but what were they after? <laughs> the German scientists wanted the hard water. Oh. Yeah. Uh, the Vodka. German. <laughs> no, the Russian sorry. soldiers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Okay. okay. So the Germans quickly took over the water plant at Weimark and started producing research that could potentially lead to nuclear warhead production. Uh, Seeing this, Leif knew that the Allies had to learn about this potential, you know, possibility of global disaster. Yes. <laughs> uh, but before he could send adequate explanation, he and his immediate accomplices were compromised by the Gestapo and Leif was forced to flee. Oh. Mm, the pesky Gestapo. So Leif secretly traveled from Trondheim to Oslo. In Oslo, a Gestapo officer came to the house Leif was staying at and attempted to arrest him. Leif only barely escaped by hiding for the next couple of days. Wow. Uh, he then walked to Sweden. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? Yes, he walked to Sweden from Oslo, and Sweden was neutral at the time, Okay. Uh, so he was safe there. Uh, here in Sweden, he rejected an offer to just live a cozy life working in Sweden, and then instead managed to secretly fly to England to continue work against the Nazis. Man, sounds so like, like this guy's got a mission in his head. Yeah, so that's like the patriotic thing you were, you were asking about earlier. There it is. He's not going to give up fighting for his country. Good for Leif. Mm, yes. So Leif arrived in England in October of 1941 and was immediately asked to join the British military efforts. Uh, Leif kind of refused, though, because he wanted to focus on helping the people of Norway, his countrymen. Okay, there's that patriotism thing yeah. again. Uh, so he continued to stay in contact with various scientists in Norway who kept him updated as much as they could about German production of heavy water. <laughs> that phrase, heavy water, I know. it just sounds like the title of a shitty horror movie. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or like a Christian alternative rock album. <laughs> I was cleansed by heavy water. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, at one point, Leaf even declared that he wanted to enroll in active duty and be sent to the front lines. But wow. The, yeah. Uh, but the Norwegian military command said no because he was, you know, kind of too valuable for the war theater. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, dude, you've got a doctorate in some... Sciencey thing. You know about the heavy water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so instead of doing this, he joined the Norwegian government and worked for the Ministry of Defense and the Norwegian High Command. Uh, at, one, at about this time, Leif learned that German heavy water production at Vermork had greatly increased and the danger of German production of producing nuclear energy was dangerously close. Man, that's scary. Yeah, right? And I had never heard of this story, by the way, before really? this. Yeah, like, crazy. Huh. Uh, so as such, the Norwegian government began working with the British Special Forces and Intelligence Agency to put a stop to the water facility project at Vermork. A team of special agents uh, were then parachuted into the area of the facility in order to gather more intelligence on it and figure out the best way to take it down. Well, that's scary as hell. Yeah, uh, yeah. and they were just there to like take pictures of it and wow. measure things. They <laughs> this gets scarier okay. as things progress. Uh, so the British then suggested that a, uh, bombers be sent to basically bomb the facility back to the Stone Age, 
Belief said that this would be way too risky because a lot of civilians lived in the area, and also the heavy water facility was in an armored basement that would probably be bombproof. I see. Yeah. Uh, so the next plan was what was named Operation Freshman. <laughs> Was it awkward and out of place? Yeah. Everyone lost 15 pounds and didn't get laid. God damn it. (laughs) Too true. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, So what was Operation Freshman? Well, the plan was to secretly drop two British gliders holding 34 British commandos and military engineers near the facility. Okay. This team would then secretly enter the facility, plant a ton of explosives, and blow the whole thing up. Yeah, great. Uh, Yeah, sounds good. (laughs) Uh, It took place on November 19th, 1942 and was a total disaster. They probably should have given it like Operation Senior as the name mm, instead of you'd Operation think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what Operation uh, Honors Society. <laughs> <laughs> so uh what went wrong? Well, uh it's it was I mean November 9th or 19th in the Norwegian mountains. Uh, uh-huh. Poor weather. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Uh, so poor weather caused both gliders to crash into the ground, injuring many of the commandos. The Gestapo troops were quick to the scene, took all of the British soldiers captive, interrogated and tortured them, oh, including man. the wounded oh, ones. Oh, Jesus. And then executed them all. Okay, so we've learned two things. One, Nazis are bastards. And two, mm. that mission didn't work. Yes, Ugh. exactly. Okay. And interesting enough that they're executed because Hitler said all commandos should be treated like spies. Oh, yeah, I heard that, actually. Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, the British failed to get rid of the hard water. And it was now time for Leaf to take matters into his own hands in order to destroy the facility. And this was going to be hard. Uh, So the facility itself was completely isolated in the Norwegian mountains. The only way to actually get there was to cross a bridge over a 660-foot drop ravine with unscalable cliff sides. Wait. Nothing's unscalable. I've played Modern Warfare 2. <laughs> well, yeah, that's okay. true. Jokes aside, how did they get there? I mean, was well, there anything else in their there, way? Yeah, there's a lot more in their oh, way. Oh, shit. So, further, the Germans had beefed up their security after seeing Operation Freshman. Okay. Uh, so, the bridge was heavily guarded by German soldiers. Mines were planted near the bridge and are in the surrounding mountains. Barbed wire fences were put up and floodlights were installed. So it's now just a fort. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Any attempt to infiltrate the facility was considered to be a suicide by British and Norwegian intelligence. Uh, But Leif was convinced that something had to be done. There he is again. And he's right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's not wrong. (laughs) That's for sure. Uh, So a new commando team was organized, and this time it was left up to the Norwegians. Leif uh, had 12 hand-picked Norwegian commandos, and they were armed with explosives, given an aerial photo of the facility, which was all they had to work off of. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, And then they were sent out. Wow. So, <laughs> I don't know why they went from 34 commandos down to 12 commandos. I guess smaller team. Yeah. Harder to pin down. I guess so. Yeah. Anyway, this is what would become known as Operation Gunnerson. Now there's a name of success. Right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And this was Leaf's plan. He, he came up with it. Oh, uh, awesome. And that's why I'm going to tell you about it. All right. <laughs> And I gotta say, this story is straight out of a movie. Perfect. It's gonna sound made up, but it really happened. That's amazing. All right, let's go. So Leif's Operation Gunnerside took place in 1942. Leif himself wanted to go with his team, but once again, the Norwegian military refused because he was just too smart. This guy (laughs) is awesome. I know. He's like, get me out there. Uh, so the operation went on without him while Leaf just basically waited to hear what happened. That and it was sucks. a long time, too. Yeah. 
Uh, so here's what happened. The 12 Norwegian commandos were secretly parachuted into the Norwegian mountains pretty far from the facility. Uh, they landed at the... <laughs> fuck. <laughs> hard hard in Norvita. <laughs> Hard, Hardunger, Hardunger Vita. Yeah. I, 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 we fucked it up. I'm sorry. It's a very long Norwegian name. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it's a mountain plateau, and they were stuck here through the winter. The whole winter? Yeah. Wow. And winter here was brutal. Norwegian legend says that this part of the mountains is so cold in the winter that it can freeze the flames of a fire. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so the 12 commandos barely survived and had to resort to eating wild reindeer and the contents of the reindeer's stomachs. Oh my god. Yeah. This is like the, the revenant or something. <laughs> exactly. Uh, amazingly, they did survive and then used skis, of course, because they're Scandinavian, uh, to reach the bottom of the ravine right under the facility. Now, okay, uh, just think about this for a second. Yeah. All right. You have survived one of the harshest winters in the mountains. Yeah. And you've got one of the most important missions to carry out. And Which you've is just, probably suicide. Yeah. And you've just been waiting. And then what do you do? You ski down a mountainside and there you are. You're yeah. right there. Can you imagine the tension? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So they reach the bottom of the ravine right under the facility. Yeah. But remember, there's like a 660 foot cliff uh, up to the facility. And <laughs> because, well, fuck. <laughs> Now, the reason they're at the bottom of the cliff is because there is that bridge up there, but it's heavily guarded by German soldiers. So instead, uh, they're at the bottom of the cliffs, and they decide to scale the 660-foot cliffs. Oh. In oh. the middle of winter. Oh, yeah. And in the middle of the night. Well, of course. I mean, shit. Why not? Just go all the way. And <laughs> did they make it? They did. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah, so they climbed the whole cliff. Uh, and Everybody survived. Everybody survived. That's amazing. All 12 of them. Uh, so, but the story's not done yet. Okay. After reaching the top of the cliff, the group then carefully approached the facility by navigating through the minefields. Oh my god. <laughs> they managed to not lose a single guy by this point, and had also not alerted the many German guards. Wow. They then got to the facility building and tried entering through a basement door, but this didn't work, so they were forced to climb through a small hole in the wall that was open for cables. Wow. Yeah, so they're just basically, or barely making it through this hole. Yeah. Uh, now that they were inside, the team had to deal with the German guards in the building. Uh, thankfully, the deafening sound of the generators helped them keep their cover. Wow. The guards were completely surprised, um, unarmed by the commandos, and then locked in a room by them. Oh, wait, so they disarmed them. Yeah, that's what I meant. Okay, yes, yeah, disarmed. I was like, they don't have guns, they're guards! Yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah. they're locked in the room, and the commandos are now doing what? Uh, well, and also, they might have killed some of the guards. It was hard to, like, the different accounts okay, of what okay. might have happened. Uh, but the guards are not important right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the commandos then started placing explosives on all the key foundations of the building and prepared to light a 30-second fuse. Okay. And this is where things get weird. Uh, weird? <laughs> yeah, oh. weirder. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, so while some of the commandos were placing the bombs, a few others came across an old Norwegian man who worked as caretaker of this part of the facility. Oh. They held the man at gunpoint, uh, but soon found out that he was more than happy to help them and was totally on their side. Well, shit. He was a patriot. This is like Die Hard 2. <laughs> yeah. Or something, I don't know. <laughs> something like that. Okay. Uh, so now it's 12 commandos and an old Norwegian man, and it's time to light the fuses. Uh, but just then, the old caretaker announces that he can't find his glasses, uh, and he orders the commandos to help him find the glasses before they blow the whole thing up. What? 
And the bastards do it! They do? Yeah! Jesus! They don't light the fuses until they they find the guy's glasses. <laughs> That's amazing! So it's these 12 commandos just looking around the place. Wow. They did find the glasses, it, it seems like. Uh, and then they lit the fuses and rushed outside of the facility to hide during the explosion. Uh, the explosion went off perfectly, and the entire inside bottom portion of the building was completely destroyed. Wow. Uh, a German guard heard the explosion, and the Norwegian commandos watched as he walked to the building and tried to enter the door to the basement. But the commandos had locked the door, so the guard, finding it locked, just returned back to his uh, his bunker. Okay. <laughs> Turns out many of the Germans had heard the explosion, but just thought that the weather had set off one of the mines they had planted. Oh, oh my god. And this gave the commandos adequate time to escape into the mountains. That's amazing. It isn't it? Completely undetected. Yeah. Jeez. So once the Germans realized what had actually happened, a huge search was organized in order to find the Norwegians. Uh, more than 3,000 German soldiers were sent to scout the area and find them, but it was way too late. Wow. The 12 commandos escaped without losing a single guy. They eventually split up. Uh, some returned to England, some escaped to neutral Sweden, via skiing, of course. Of course. And some stayed in Norway to help the Norwegian resistance. That is amazing. Yeah. So Operation Side Gunner had been a total success. <sighs> German General Falkenhorst, who was in command of German forces in Norway, called it a brilliant coup. <laughs> Even he was like, well, shit. <laughs> Uh, the commandos had also left a British Tommy gun at the scene of the crime in order to paint this as a British act rather than a Norwegian act, with the British permission, of course. Uh, oh, I see. Uh, because this would hopefully protect against hostile revenge actions on the Norwegian people. That is so clever. It was, yeah. Uh, as a side note, most of these 12 Norwegian commanders were not really military men until World War II came. They had been just normal Norwegian civilians with jobs of things like teacher, postman, tour guide, and factory worker. Wow! So it's cool how they just turned into total badasses. Yeah, so if you're listening to this and you're a teacher, a tour guide, or a factory worker, you could become a commando tomorrow. <laughs> oh. It's in you. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh so the strike at Wehrmark put a stop to German production of heavy water for three months. Awesome. Uh, the facility was rebuilt after that period, but the Germans had lost valuable time in research and production. The American Air Force eventually, in the American way, uh, flattened the facility <laughs> once and oh for God. all with like over 150 bombers. Oh, Jesus. Uh, but they killed a ton of Norwegian civilians in the process, unfortunately. I, I guess because they were working there? Or, or in, in the area. I, oh, I think in the there area. there were some houses okay. there. And, Shit. That yeah. sucks. So now back to, to Leif Tronstad. Okay. Uh, his story does not stop with his successful planning of Operation Gunnerside. Soon thereafter, Leif received word from some of his Norwegian contacts that the Germans were testing long-range weapons at a base in... Hmm... <laughs> Penamunde, Germany. <laughs> Penamunde? <laughs> Isn't I don't he know. a Jedi? <laughs> I would have thought it was Penamund. I don't know. Oh, fuck, you're I, right. I don't know. Okay. Well, <laughs> probably. Uh, anyway, so here the Germans were testing things like the V-1 and V-2 rockets, yeah. uh, which are, you know, notorious for devastating a ton of England. Mm -hmm. uh, Leif gave this information over to British intelligence, and the Allies were able to bomb the base in 1944, preventing the Germans from continuing to use these rockets against England. Wow. Leif was given credit by some of his fellow scientists and intelligence officers. It was said that Leif, quote, contributed directly to the speedy victory of the Allied nations, besides saving the region which came to be known as southern Eng England from an even longer and more severe ordeal than it had actually endured. Wow, okay, so that's 
That's, he's a hero. <laughs> he's, he's a he's a hero. I can't believe I've never heard of him. I know. And we're not done with him. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, in 1944, as it became clear that Germany was losing, Germany abandoned Norway, uh, but used scorched earth tactics to leave behind their legacy and basically flip off the country of mm, Norway. That's a classic German move. Yeah. Uh, Nazi move, we well, should say. Well, I should say Germany in World War II moves. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Leif was very concerned about this, uh, so he helped organize Operation Sunshine. Oh, that's a great name. <laughs> To. <laughs> yeah, uh, this operation aimed to save important Norwegian industrial and agricultural centers, but this was not enough for Leif. Oh, he needed to be there. He needed to be on the front lines. Uh, his superiors finally gave uh, Leif permission to return to Norway, and so he and eight other returning Norwegian agents were secretly parachuted in on October 4th, 1944. I kind of feel like at the end of all this, they're like, all right, fine, you can go in. Yeah. Wait, wait, we destroyed a heavy water facility stop with your planning. Stop the V1 and V2. Yeah, stop the like... V1, the V2, and, and you know, <laughs> Operation Sunshine. Yes, all right, you can finally go in. <laughs> You've earned it, my boy. All right, so they go in in 1944, and yep. what do they do? Well, they started living secretly because there's still Germans in the area mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're living secretly in a rustic cabin while carrying out resistance work and avoiding German patrols and that is where we'll leave Leaf for now that is amazing Great what a story. guy yeah. um, I think we need to take a break me and, too and I think uh, I think wow I don't know how Brigham Young is gonna talk top that one but I, I'm I'm just going to listen to the Norwegian National Anthem during this break <laughs> <laughs> yeah no shit yeah. alright All right. we'll be right back and we are back to We Talk About Dead People, and when we left off, we were hearing about the most badass Norwegian to ever live, named Leif Tronstad, and we're about to move into an American Moses, named Brigham Young, <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, but there's almost no way uh, he's going to top Leif, but... We'll try. <laughs> we're going to try. Um, but when we left Brigham Young, he was living in Menden, New York, and discovering some oh, right. book. Yes. Right. The, so, the, the book. Yes. He had been just kind of working as a handyman, and okay. he became a Methodist, but then he found this book. Oh, no. And the book, you might have guessed, was the Book of Mormon. Right. And how anyone gets excited about this book is anyone's guess, because I've read it, and let me tell you, if you're not pumping caffeine through the whole reading, you're going to fall right asleep, <laughs> uh, which makes me feel bad for the poor Mormons who study this thing. Yeah. Uh, as a point of doctrine, most Mormons don't consume caffeine, or I think it's just, it might just be coffee, but uh, either way. I think it's caffeine. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Okay. But it takes a man or a woman made of solid fucking steel to get through this thing without stimulants. I will say, <laughs> Gosh. I've been listening to it to sleep at night. <laughs> Uh, anyway, some things stood about Brigham Young, um, stood out to Brigham Young mm -hmm. on his reading of this Book of Mormon and the other doctrines that the founder of the LDS, Joseph Smith, was pumping out at the time. The main things that Brigham Young liked about his new church, uh, or this new church, I should say, it's not his yet, okay. uh, was its commitment to Christian primitivism, which is what? just a doctrine that Christians should live in caves and hunt woolly mammoths. Really? No, no it's not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I actually, I actually didn't look that up. We should look that up. Yes. Hold on. Should we pause here, or, or should yeah, we... Alright, so we looked it up, and Christian primitivism is basically just the... It's also called restorationism, which is to oh, say that yeah. the idea is that they go back to how Christians used to do things. Okay. So anyway, he he, he really liked this, Brigham Young. Hmm. Um, it also uh, was... Uh, the LDS, or whatever, Joseph Smith's church, was focused on millennialism. Okay. Um, which just means they spent a lot of time talking about the end of the world. They of also course. liked authoritarianism, and... Uh... Yep. 
puritanical bits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the boring stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the thing he liked uh, the most about this new church is that unlike a lot of churches back at that time, there was a clear and easy progression system built in. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, he's very attracted to these forms of upward mobility, thinks they're fair. Yeah. Uh, and he joins the Mormon church. Okay. Um, so, the final nail in the coffin for his conversion was that... Interesting analogy. <laughs> well, I didn't mean it like that. Okay, so the final thing that affected his conversion uh, was that he met Joseph Smith. And uh, we will probably talk about him on that this oh, podcast yeah. at some point, no for doubt. Sure. <laughs> Joseph Smith was incredibly charismatic and totally on fire for his faith. And it's clear that Brigham Young was very attracted to the man's zeal and charisma. Cool. Yeah. So it wasn't long before Brigham Young truly believed that Joseph Smith was onto something with this whole Book of Mormon thing. Which, if you don't know about the Book of Mormon's origins, I'll fill you in real quick so we have a little context. Oh, good. The Book of Mormon reads like Old Testament fan fiction. Very long story, very short. Joseph Smith claims that he found some golden plates in the woods, translated them, and found them uh, in them to be what essentially boils down to a lost section of the Bible about a whole thriving civilization in the Americas long before the West came in and bothered things up a bit. Hmm. Also, Jesus makes a few appearances and tries to convert people to Christianity long before Christianity was even a thing in Europe or Asia. I'll hold my comments and concerns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Brigham Young read this story and connected with it very, very strongly. So he concluded that Joseph Smith was actually a prophet who could receive divine messages from God. And at the time, Joseph Smith had convinced lots of people of this. Right. But anyway, so the thing about Joseph Smith is that he was never really quite done with receiving doctrines and messages from God. He didn't... Okay. It wasn't like he had revelation for the Book of Mormon and a few, you know, doctrines and covenants or whatever. Sure. Um, he just kept coming it's up with It's an ongoing them. thing. Yeah, it's okay. an ongoing thing. So when Brigham Young joined the LDS Church, Joseph Smith really just kind of looked like any Christian in North America at that time. Hmm. The only difference was that Joseph was the only one who had an account of what was transpiring in the Americas while the whole Old Testament was going on overseas. Hmm. But that was really about where the differences ended. And all I'm saying is that this shift from Methodism to Mormonism wasn't that big of a deal. Um, yeah, as long as you believe... Sense. If you believe the one story that Joseph Smith said about finding the plates in the woods... Right. Um, you know, you're not that different from a, from a typical Christian. Sure. Um, but Miriam Works, uh, Brigham's wife, died in 1832, Aww. leaving the poor man single and alone in the church. But this didn't stop him from working his way up the ladder. In 1835, Brigham Young had worked his way up through the ranks and found himself on what was called the Council of the Twelve Apostles, hmm. which is basically the equivalent to being on the board of directors of some corporation. Okay. One of the main responsibles, uh, responsibles. <laughs> one of the main responsibilities for the Council of Twelve uh, was and is evangelism, and Brigham Young was just the guy because he had spent some time evangelizing in Canada on his way up the ladder. Hmm. So Brigham Young was sent to England, where he is put in charge. Uh, of organizing new churches and supervising missionaries and whatnot. Okay. So oddly enough, the LDS teaching caught on really well in England. Really? Uh, <laughs> and was kind of taking it care itself, taking care of itself. So uh, he went back to the states only a year later. Oh wow! But when he got there, it was a turbulent time. You see, this is where things were starting to get a bit bumpy in the LDS church. Hmm. In Brigham Young's absence, Joseph Smith had continued to okay. come up with prophecies and whatnot. But uh, there's a lot more to, uh, to, to it than what I'm about to say, but basically the Mormons had resettled in Missouri uh, where they were not liked. Uh, they were seen as like heretics, pretty much? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Okay. Um, and Joseph Smith, again, kept coming out with doctrines. It wasn't just like, oh, look at this sure, book, consider yeah. this. It was, I'm receiving direct revelation from the Lord. Here's, yeah. you know. Um, so anyway, so uh, the, the Mormons in Missouri um, were, in short, 
actually seeing like real persecution. Oh wow! Uh, mobs were breaking shit and hurting people. Uh, something called the nineteenth or eighteen thirty eight uh, Mormon War transpired. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, uh, during which mobs burned Mormon farms, uh, which the church answered with by pillaging non Mormon towns. Uh, the governor of Missouri uh, ordered the extermination. Or expulsion from that state. Whoa. Which, yeah, I know. There was a real problem. Whoa. But this resulted in the massacre of 17 Mormons at the Hans Hill Massacre. Oh. And ultimately led to the church leaving Missouri. So, they're on the run. And uh, Joseph, I don't like any of this. Yeah. So, at this point, Joseph Smith is in prison. Uh, and responsibility for the surviving church fell to Brigham Young, okay. who immediately organized a mass migration to Illinois. And while this was going on, Joseph Smith escaped from jail and found his way to Illinois, where he bought up some land for he and his refugee church to settle. And then things cooled off for a little while, and Brigham Young got busy with missionary work again. And the church began to take root in Illinois, despite terrible diseases and famine threatening to wipe out the whole Mormon community. One of the major converts at the time had connections in the legislature and managed to get Joseph Smith's little town of, I think it's Nauvoo, uh, a charter that basically made the place its own little state with university... An army, everything. Oh. Yes, I said army. Oh, no. And it was the largest armed force in Illinois. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and things are about to get weird again. <sighs> now, remember, Joseph Smith still claims that he's receiving revelations directly from God. Right. And one of these revelations was the well-known revelation of plural marriage. Ooh. And not many people know this, but when Joseph Smith made his live TV announcement that polygamy was going to be a thing in his church, a lot of LDS members hated it. <laughs> uh, and get this, Brigham Young was one of them. Really? Yeah, when Joseph Smith announced that the church would be polygamous, Brigham Young said the following, quote, It was the first time in my life that I desired the grave. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> so, which is kind of hilarious because while some sources differ, it's generally believed that this man married 55 women before he died. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> All, uh, you got a private army. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All that aside, though, it wasn't really a public revelation at first. Joseph Smith had been practicing holy polygamy, known colloquially as cheating, mm. for a while before <laughs> announcing that it was actually going to be a major part of the church after basically getting caught sleeping around. Mm. Anyway, as you can imagine, cheating and then claiming you're doing it because God told you so does not go over well. Yeah. And this new doctrine divides the church in a big way. Huh. Lots of people leave and popular opinion about Joseph Smith and the church starts to shift. Hmm. Uh, thus far in Illinois, Joseph Smith had been winning the hearts of the people by playing the part of the persecuted religious minority, but now word was getting out that his town was full of polygamists who were armed to the teeth, and rumors were starting to spread. Wow. <laughs> Further, Joseph was doing his best to separate the LDS church from Illinois, petitioning the government to just give him the territory. Whoa. Uh, and he even ran for president at one point, <laughs> but obviously it didn't go anywhere. Whoa. Um, so Brigham Young and Joseph Smith were equal in power in the church. Oh. So while it's easy to just say, oh yeah, Joseph Smith went you know, too far a little bit, uh, it's probably just fair to say that two, the two of them were colluding on all of this. Right. Um, Brigham Young, as the leader of the Council of Twelve, called a meeting with Smith and about 50 other people to literally decide what laws they were not going to follow. <laughs> they also organized uh, for some scouts to go and find a new place for the Mormons to settle in order to get away. Okay. In 1844, though, Joseph Smith is arrested and killed in jail by a mob. Mm. So, Brigham Young is officially the leader of the church now, but with the sudden power vacuum, it takes a full three years for him to become the actual president of it hmm. all. 
Um, as the head of the Council of Twelve, it was easy for him to convince his followers to give him control, and his first order of business was to get the fuck out of Illinois. I don't blame him. No. <laughs> so they embark on one of the largest pioneer, if not the largest pioneer, migrations in American history, Whoa. making tracks for Salt Lake Valley, which at the time was Mexican territory that the United States was trying to capture. Classic. Uh, and by the time the Mormons got there, the U.S. had succeeded, hmm. meaning that the LDS uh, escape from the American government was rather short-lived. Uh, yet something happened that made things a little easier for the LDS church. Brigham Young was appointed governor of Utah, hmm. and he got fucking busy. Oh, no. Under his command, <laughs> the Mormons build infrastructural systems such as uh, roads, bridges, forts, and cities, oh, shit. and the first transcontinental railroad. So, big that, They were deal. a part of that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Brigham Young also ordered the extermination of the native Tipanogo uh, tribe after they allegedly killed a man and stole some cattle. Oh, shit. The Nauvoo Legion, uh, Brigham Young's personal army, ended up killing a hundred of them by the end of the massacre, oh. but the tribe decides to make peace with the Mormons before the extermination can be carried out entirely. Smart move. Yeah. So, uh... Young spent some time on slavery reform, though. Good, right? Yeah. Uh, no. Oh, no. Slavery reform to Brigham Young meant getting as many slaves as possible. Come on. Uh, and he also bans black people from becoming part of the church. He called them the, quote, seed of Cain. And that's as in Cain and Abel? Yeah, as in Cain and Abel. Oh, I, I, from what I understand, there was a belief, maybe not now, that Cain was black and Abel was white. And so when Cain... Or rather, Cain became black after he killed Abel. Oh, God the curse said, of That Cain. was the curse. Oh, yeah. fuck. I know. Isn't fuck that off. shitty? <laughs> I feel like a shitbag even explaining yeah. it. Um, he also, Brigham Young also said in 1863, quote, I hate reading this shit, oh, no. but you gotta know. So, shall I tell you the law of God in regard to the African race? God damn it. If the white man who belongs to the chosen seed mixes his blood with the seed of Cain, the penalty under the law of God is death on the spot. This will always be so. All right. I'm not a fan. No, nope, not a not, fan of not, this guy. No, not so, so. But anyway, yeah, it, it was like this until fucking 1978. You're kidding. You said 1978. Fucking 78. When the ban was Jesus lifted. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, and that, I mean, that was when the ban was lifted. And the president at the time, Spencer Kimball, claimed that it was entirely Brigham Young's fault that it had happened at all. Oh. But I'm sorry, if it was, wouldn't it have changed a little sooner than 1978? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Never mind. Um, there's a lot of backtracking going oh, on in the wow. Mormon church right now. <laughs> so well, I guess that's good. It, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so Brigham Young and his band of jolly fellows were Ugh. getting a bad reputation. Go figure. Good. <laughs> uh, they were notoriously pro-slavery and at this point openly polygamous. Ugh. And the U.S. was starting to dislike both of these things. Well, they already hated polygamy, but they were really starting to hate slavery. Well, too. they didn't think polygamy was like around. No, <laughs> like, it's, it's officially sanctioned by a Christian. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> So, uh, James Buchanan, the president at the time, was starting to take notice of this little theocracy just running things out in Utah, and people are starting to get worried. Rumors of a Zionist, polygamous, militarized community threatens to challenge the stability of the American West. I wonder why. Yeah. It also starts to get worrisome when Mormons start taking government positions and using their power to benefit the church hmm. and their city. 
Reports start coming back that Utah is basically being run by a Mormon police force. What? And that in major Mormon centers of the state, the laws of the United States are being openly ignored and even opposed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Not only does this insular behavior cause more problems at the United States government, it starts to become a major problem for non-Mormon migrants yeah. who are heading to the West Coast. Because oh. they still have to pass through. You yeah. Know, I mean, we've all played the Oregon Well, if you see a big city, you're going to stop there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they say, oh, yeah, it's Salt Lake City. Okay. You know, he started Salt Lake City at this yeah. point. Like, you will stop there. Oh. Um, but anyway, so in 1857, Brigham Young declared martial law in Mormon-controlled parts of Utah. Yeah. And this is about the time a party of Mark, uh, migrants, <laughs> migrants called the Baker-Fancher Party stopped to make camp in a place called Mountain Meadows, oh, Utah. No. Yep. When LDS leadership heard that there were non-Mormons in their territory, they decided to dress up as Native Americans oh, and attack them on. to try to drive them out. Now, the reason for the disguise was pretty simple. They didn't want the government to know that they were attacking U.S. citizens, but they still wanted these, quote, Gentiles out of their land. That's Reminds me of the Boston Tea Party. Yeah. yeah. Dressing up as Native Americans to get the blame off yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's actually exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they besieged these poor people of the uh, Baker-Fancher Party. But the migrants circle their wagons and hold out for literal days. Nice. Some of the migrants, however, noticed that some of these Native Americans were white. Mm. So when the Mormons come out to the party with a white flag, claiming that they've stopped the natives' attack. <laughs> yeah. So, they, yeah, they come out. They're like, yeah, so we stopped them. At False the, flag. Yeah, wow. it, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the Baker-Fancher party is like, yeah, bullshit. <laughs> um <laughs> And, uh, anyway, long story short, the Mormons killed every single person in that valley. Oh my gosh! Yep, except for babies, uh, who wouldn't be able to tell the story, uh, and then made a pact amongst themselves to lie to everyone and blame the natives. Well, okay. Yep. I'm sorry, I have to dissect that sentence. Okay. So they killed, or they killed everyone except for babies who wouldn't be able to tell the story. That's right. So they killed children yes. who could talk. Any child over, I think it was four or five. Oh my gosh. There's actually a great book about this. Uh, well, it, mm, it's not about this specifically, but it has a, a much more researched account. It's called Under the Banner of Heaven mm. by John Krakauer. It's fantastic. Okay. Made waves a few years ago. But anyway, so, um, yeah. And, and then there are, they made this pact to blame the Native Americans, of course. Yes. 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 Okay. Um, so Brigham Young sticks with this story, and that's the story he tells until the U.S. government sends a man named James Henry Carlton to investigate. Okay. In the valley... James Carlton finds exposed bones of mothers still holding their oh, children, fuck. hair tangled in the brush, and a completely ravaged wagon fort. Uh, Carlton makes a cross out of branches and puts down a marker that reads as follows, quote, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You know, that quote would scare me in other circumstances, but... Right now I'm like, okay, something needs to happen. Yeah, but You can't go around killing all these migrant... No, uh, but it was there for two years, this monument, okay. uh, until Brigham Young personally went out and tore down the monument saying, quote, Vengeance is mine and I have taken a little. Oh, Fuck this guy. Fuck him. Yeah, so Brigham Young was arrested for this. Good. Uh, but the man who did the arresting was a Mormon. No charges were forthcoming, mm. and Brigham Young was released. Of course. Uh, Brigham Young went on to start the Brigham Young University. He built some temples. Yeah. Who gives a fuck? The guy was a piece of shit. Can't wait to get to his death. Mm -mm. Yeah, so... Wow. Uh, I think we should just roll right over into Leif Tronstad's end. Okay. Okay. 
Well, uh, yeah, now I'm all depressed. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Leaftron said, hero, right? Okay. Okay, so when we last left Leaf, he was finally back in Norway with eight other Norwegian agents, secretly hiding in a cabin and carrying out resistance work. Okay. It was about this time that the group began to think that the local Norwegian bailiff named Torgir Lognivik... You got it! <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh... So this this bailiff, uh, who had been installed by the Nazis, might be close to uncovering them. Oh no! Yeah, so the group decided to kidnap Torgir and interrogate him. And they did this! Uh, so they captured him and brought him back to the cabin as a prisoner. However, Torgir's brother, Johans, noticed his absence, grew suspicious, grabbed a rifle, and followed the ski tracks to the cabin. Well, shit. A lot of skis in this story. Yeah. So Johans then came crashing through the door, rifle in hand, and started shooting. Uh, the resistance fighters were taken by surprise and scattered. One was immediately shot and killed by Johans, but Leif decided to fight back. Oh shit. He ran straight for Johans, was shot, and then tackled the man, allowing the other members enough time to escape. Oh. Uh, unfortunately though, Leif Tronstad died during this last heroic action. German soldiers later found the body of Leif and burned it. Wow. Um, that yeah. sucks. What an end. Yeah, it's sad that he didn't make it through the war. I mean, it was 1944, he was almost there. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. But the good news is that, is that Leif has gone down in history as a hero of World War II and of Norway, and he absolutely deserves that. Yes! Uh, there's debate as to whether or not the Germans would have been able to make nuclear weapons had the facility not been bombed by the Norwegians, but everybody pretty much agrees that it was a heroic and necessary action either way. Never mind all the other heroic things Leif did for his country and for the Allies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a military funeral was held for Leif on May 30th, 1945, and his ashes were buried in Oslo. Uh, he was awarded Norway's highest decoration for military gallantry, the War Cross with a Sword, which oh. is an awesome-sounding award. Right, yeah. Uh, as well as the Norwegian War Medal, Norway's Defense Medal, the English Awards Order of the British Empire, and Distinguished Service Order. Okay. The French Medals, Légion d'Honneur, and Croix de... <laughs> and like. the American Medal of Freedom with Bronze Palm. Okay, we can pronounce that one. <laughs> yes. Uh, so a lot of fucking medals. Yeah, wow. Uh, there's also a memorial stone at the scene of his death. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, there are also many streets named after him in Norway and a statue of him in Sandvika, Norway. Wow, what a... That's awesome. Yeah, so, it, like, we've talked about some heroes who are kind of forgotten about, but it seems like this guy is... He gets the, the credit he deserves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, speaking good. of credit, oh, no. shall we go over to Brigham Young's end in death? Back to the abyss. So, when we left Brigham Young, he had pretty much gotten away with massacring migrants passing yeah. through his territory. And this was just one event that sort of colored him all wrong. He did, again, he did found Salt Lake City. He did work on the Transcontinental Railroad. He did do all of these things. Um, but again, it doesn't justify massacres. I think not. <laughs> so Young got cholera. Then he got a ruptured appendix. Then he screamed Joseph three times and died. Oh, <laughs> 15,000 people went to his funeral. Jesus. He was buried in Salt Lake City and a bronze marker was put on his gravesite. That's still there today. Let's give it a read, shall we? No. <laughs> yes. Uh, grave of Brigham Young, prophet, pioneer, and statesman. Died August 29th, 1877 at Salt Lake City, Utah. Brigham Young, second president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, succeeded Joseph Smith, the founder of the church, who was martyred at Carthage, Illinois. He was chosen as leader of the people in 1844 and sustained as president until December 27th, 1847. 
Earlier that year, he led the Mormon pioneers from Winter Quarters, Omaha, to the Salt Lake Valley. Arriving here July 24th, in 1849, he became governor of the provisional state of Desiree and in 1850, governor of the territory in Utah. This tablet, erected in honor of their beloved leader by the Young Men's and Young Women's Mutual Improvement Association, which were uh, organized under his direction. That's it. That's a huge memorial. Yeah, there's nothing on there about the crimes this man perpetrated. Uh, yeah. Nothing about his gross rebellion against the laws of the United States. Nothing about his absolutely immoral views. Nothing about him having, you know, organized a massacre. Nothing at all of substance. Just bullshit. Not a word. Also, yeah. all that racist shit. Yeah. He, oh, yeah. Nothing. nothing. Oh, yeah. Uh, his legacy is as follows. He is still honored in the LDS Church today as being a wildly successful and spirited man who was truly touched by God. Yeah, which God? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Mountain Meadows Massacre and the insanity surrounding is often downplayed or completely ignored in Mormon histories of the church, even though scholars across the board have done the work to say it certainly happened and it certainly involved Mormon settlers. Hmm. The embarrassing fact that Brigham Young was an absolute racist is something that is, again, downplayed or ignored. Of course. Um, and what's more is that his nickname, the American Moses, is vaguely affectionate. Uh, it makes him sound like he was something like a great man who escaped the enslavement of the American government in order to establish a holy community of some kind. Uh, but he wasn't. He was absolutely a religious fundamentalist extremist who ran some kind of terror war with the United States and all non-Mormons and got away with it. Fuck that. But do you know what the good news is? No. Do you? Because I don't. He's got oh. statues all over Salt Lake City. My favorite one is uh, one of him and both Joseph, both him and Joseph Smith sitting on a bench talking and laughing. Oh. Now, I don't think tearing down statues is something that should be done just because someone back in the day had some unmodern beliefs. It's history. It happened. Right. You can't erase it, and you shouldn't. Can't forget it. Yeah. There's good with the bad, and history shouldn't lie. And so, I propose a new plaque to go on Brigham Young's grave. Oh, no. It reads as follows. <laughs> Beneath lies a man who was both capable of good and evil, who exercised both good and evil, and shall be remembered for both his good and his evil. You know, I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, you should tell his whole story. Exactly. I mean, the good with the bad, and remind people that this man was not a hero by a long shot, and not a villain of the greatest magnitude we've seen either. That's true. I mean, he was a piece of shit. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he really was, even by the standards of that time. But, like, he couldn't have been all bad. Sure. In fact, in the very least, he has over a thousand direct descendants out there, and I'm sure at least some of those people are doing amazing things. Yeah. So, in short, Brigham Young doesn't deserve the hero worship he's been given. Not at all. No. <laughs> he doesn't deserve to ever be equated with the devil himself, either. He wasn't a demon. He was just, you know, a major dick. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, again, don't want it to make it sound like I'm defending what he did. Uh, it's just... You know, history is more complex than yeah. most people want to make it out to be. That's true. It's um, rarely black and white. Rarely, rarely black and white like that. Hmm. Um, well, they're one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, what oh. the hell? Shall we head to the surface? Indeed, sir. you gonna do for the rest of the day james i'm taking the train down to the city uh what for i'm going to see wicked again i'd like the show okay you would you know the actress that plays alphaba is actually green that's not body paint she's actually green really yeah since she got the lead part she's just been made of money go fuck yourself <laughs> well uh <laughs> I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. Feel free to send all your hate mail to We Talk About Dead People Podcast at gmail.com. We will read all of it and not along. 
If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com slash We Talk About Dead People. Even as little as a dollar, as much as it costs to donate a dollar to the Church of Latter-day Saints. I can't remember writing that. Helps tremendously. Our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of stupidity play you out. The millennial jeopardizes our way of life in ways never imagined. Such mass confusion confirms end-time prophecy. The impending worldwide panic could signal the end of this age and Christ's glorious return.